to a very special episode 50 of the Retrospectives podcast, Dark Souls. James, did you ever think we would be spending time talking about Dark Souls all this time later when we first started with episode one? Yeah, I did actually, but I thought it would be in about, you know, 10 years from now when it's actually a fucking retro <laughs> game, Patrick. Yeah, well, I just couldn't help myself. You see, James and I on this show, we can't help talk about Dark Souls. We feel compelled to compare every you single feel compelled i feel compelled to compare every single game in existence to dark souls i think it's one of the most influential games ever made and i think that it's a masterpiece of genius game design in so many ways and so we decided to celebrate uh, our special celebrate force you to uh justify your constant comparisons your constant bringing up of this game that has uh somehow worked its way into every single or almost every single episode of our show patrick so uh you know you've got a lot of explaining to do and i uh, expect you to uh justify your love for dark souls as such those words sound so sweet to me james because there's nothing i love more as my friends well know then talking about the glory of Dark Souls. And now I finally get to, for the next, well, hopefully six hours, explain to everyone how brilliant Dark <laughs> Souls is, which will create a lot of pain for you in the editing room, but it'll be well worth it because I get to share with the world how great this game is. But uh, maybe you'll be there to uh, to keep me in check and stop me going overboard. Yeah, to, to pull you down as you float off into the sky. So uh, if this is the first episode you're listening to, we are the Retrospectives podcast. Uh, normally what we do in each and every fortnight is we review a classic game of the past. Uh, we're breaking our rules. Normally we look at about 15 to 30 years old and we're reviewing a slightly newer game. Dark Souls from 2011 because it's our 50th special episode. The goal of each and every episode is to determine if these games have well and truly stood the test of time, if they're worth your time to play today. We're not concerned about how good these games were in the time in which they were released. We just want to know uh, how fun they are to play today, if you know, alongside the many Souls like that have been released have supposedly refined the formula in a whole bunch of ways and while i would love to wax lyrical about the historical impact that dark souls had in 2011 and how it represented a change in the industry in so many ways that is not our focus today we're just going to be talking about how good dark souls is in and of itself with plenty of comparisons to uh to modern souls like titles in many ways, Dark Souls has been a yardstick for the games we've reviewed on this show up until this point. Uh, Patrick and I have often used its combat gameplay and storytelling as a you know measure for other ga older titles. So really, this episode is here to justify the use of that yardstick throughout the series. Yeah, yardstick is a really good way to put it. We we compare uh, we've compared these other games to Dark Souls, and we've said. Dark Souls is how it's done right. So yeah, this this is our thesis. This is our case for Dark Souls in a lot of ways. But we'll try to highlight the problems with this game because uh, it's not a flawless masterpiece by any stretch, something that we'll get into later. So for those who have been living under a gaming rock their entire lives, Dark Souls was an action RPG that was released in 2011 
from From Software, and it was originally released for the PS3 and Xbox 360. It came out a year later for PC uh, in 2012, with the Artorius of the Abyss DLC included, which is very important to the Dark Souls experience. In one of the uh, worst ports in video game history, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, this really showed to the world that Games for Windows Live is perhaps the worst DRM ever made. It was very painful for me back in 2012 dealing with that. Uh, since then, it's been re-released with a remastered version for all the newer consoles on PC and even the Nintendo Switch. So I think before we get into the substance of our review, it would be useful for us to explain our prior experience with Dark Souls. So James, have you played Dark Souls prior to this episode? How many times have you played through it, if so? Um, so yeah, I got the game on release, having not played the you know the original Demon Souls, which released a few years prior. Um, and I didn't know anything about it other than the fact that all these people online were claiming it is very difficult. And I, being the uh, pro gamer that I am, decided that there wasn't a game that could be that difficult and bought the game uh, in the hopes of, you know, proving that I could beat it too. Back then, I think the way we viewed difficulty in games was quite different. Um, I think that... Something that really caught me off guard was that in term when people were talking about the game as being difficult, they were more referring to um, its accessibility rather than, you know, the difficulty of the moment-to-moment combat. And this hit me like a truck when I first tried it in 2011, and I found myself bouncing off it two or three times, and probably on my fifth character, I actually managed to finally get past the Bell Tower Gargoyles, and ended up, you know, completing that run and uh, falling in love with the game like yourself. Um, since then, I have played each of From's games. Um, I have only completed, however, Bloodborne and um one a couple of times so this for this episode will be my third time completing the game i also like you bounced off dark souls the first time i tried it i actually played a bit of demon souls but i played for a few hours thought it was too hard gave up i got dark souls and i got up to sen's fortress found it too hard gave up i think that was my second character it was only when it was released for PC that I finally knuckled down and finally beat it. Since then, I have played through Dark Souls to completion, maybe two or three times, but I've played the first half of it in the DLC like six times. The The latter half of the game is not the same as the first half plus the DLC, so I, I've... I haven't beaten Gwyn, you know, seven times, but I've done a large chunk of the content like six or seven times. Mm, so I've actually only beaten Gwyn twice, with one of my playthroughs ending at the DLC and then not finishing two of the four Lord Souls. Mm. And in addition to that, I've also tried to beat the game at Soul Level 1, where mm -hmm. I got roadblocked by Ornstein and Smell very, uh, very badly and, you know... Uh, was unable to progress because I just wasn't good enough. And I also tried to do a run where I played with only fist weapons. Um, similarly, I also got roadblocked at Ornstein and Smell. 
um, and never continued. <laughs> Which is funny because, uh, as we'll see, I uh, beat them second try this playthrough, but uh, that's a that's a conversation I think we'll have later. Yeah, I also did a um, it's called a Dick Wraith run. Um, the way invasions work in Dark Souls is that it's based on your soul level, but a lot of your power doesn't come from your soul level. It comes from the weapons you wield. So if you're prepared to go through the game at level one, which is possible, you can obtain a super overpowered character and be invading others and just trivializes the whole thing. It does require you to beat some significant challenges at level one, which I did. And um, I don't feel a little bit bad about it because it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so just quickly, I played... Um the game over this past week on the remastered edition on the pc um and had zero issues with it whatsoever it ran perfectly every time uh, actually i did have one um my controller stopped working um and i had to mess around in steam to get it working for about 20 minutes um but other than that no issues so i i uh i also played remastered on pc it's worth noting that the remastered version is basically just a graphics upscale uh, if you have the original Dark Souls and you uh, install DS Fix, uh, you will have 99.9% .9 the same experience. Uh, there was one extremely annoying bug I encountered regarding a bug. Uh, at one point, you can kill a bug that will give you a, um, a helmet that emits light, but the bug that I was meant to kill uh, clipped through the world and disappeared from the world, <laughs> making it impossible <laughs> for me to get that helmet that makes light. And that's just unfortunately a known issue with the game that I happened to experience, and there was no fix for it. So I had to deal deal with that. <laughs> and occasionally with Dark Souls, there are little bugs like that. So that was very annoying. But apart from that, like you, I had no major issues. Yeah, I would recommend using the remastered version over uh, any other that you could. It runs, you know, at a good frame, steady frame rate and, uh, you know, isn't a pain in the ass to get going. So, you know, a uh, good choice if you want to give it a go for the first time. Okay, James, I guess, is it time to start talking about Dark Souls? I'm so excited. Well, where do you want to start, Patrick? So I think the best place to start is definitely with the story. When I've told people that Dark Souls has one of my favorite stories in video games, they've laughed at me and they've said to me, I didn't even know there was a story. And I could not disagree with these people. I love the story of Dark Souls. The thing to understand about the story of Dark Souls is that the vast majority of the writing concerning it actually is about events hundreds and hundreds of years before the game actually takes place. So it's set during the twilight of the civilization of Lordron. This is where you spend all your time. But most of the writing concerns the Age of Gwyn. So in the world of Dark Souls, it started off with there just being darkness. Basically nothing except the ancient stone dragons. Fire was created, creating a disparity between light and dark. In addition, there were these four powerful Lord Souls that emerged that four people took who would become the gods and rulers of the New World. They fought against the ancient dragons, usurped them, and took control of a New World and the land of Lordron, which, which was basically a beautiful, beautiful city. And this was the Age of Fire. But the thing about fire is that fire fades. You can't keep a fire burning forever. Eventually, those embers are going to die down. And that is what happened. 
the fire started to fade and the god's time was at an end. It was time for a new age, the age of man, because man had access to the dark soul. So it was the natural passing of civilization. The time of gods was past. Now it was time for men. But Gwyn and the other lords didn't want this to happen. They didn't want their time to pass. So Gwyn immolated himself. He burned himself alive to keep the fire burning. And that worked for a little while. But the nature of fire is to fade. So it worked for a little while, but then eventually the fires faded again. And Gwyn was naught but cinder. As this is happening, the curse of the undead starts to take a lot of humanity. Humanity starts getting these rings on them, the dark sign, and the dark sign creates immortality, but it's a zombie-like immortality. Basically, you can't die, but every single time you do die or you do suffer a temporary death, you become more hollowed, you lose a bit more of your purpose, you lose a bit more of your humanity. These undead start getting corralled into asylums to keep them trapped and keep them away from the living humans. The game starts proper with a mysterious person dropping a key into your cell, allowing you to escape and begin your quest. That quest is kind of vague, uh, but what you are told is that if you ring some bells, something will happen. And hopefully, maybe you can solve this problem of the undead curse. That's all you get at the beginning of the game in terms of your story, because like I said, all of the writing, or the vast majority of the writing for this game, comes not in your personal journey through the game, but rather through the environmental storytelling and the story of what came before. I would put forward the argument that Dark Souls storytelling, its environmental storytelling, is really not that much different from a game like System Shock, Bioshock, or Prey. It's just that the disaster that you've awoken to isn't something that happened six months ago. It's something that's happened hundreds of years ago. Instead of getting detailed audio logs about things that happened recently, you instead have snippets of myths and legends. You have dilapidated architecture that's fallen to pieces due to the entropy of time rather than, you know, mad murderous cyberborgs or water pressure. And I just want to say this kind of storytelling, environmental storytelling, will always be my favourite. And the way in which Dark Souls does it is no exception. It does feel a little different to those games that you've described. Usually, you know, in games like Prey and Bioshock, you have these, like, audio logs, um, you know, from characters who are telling you things very... I think explicitly about the world that you're in. I think in Dark Souls, everything is a lot less um, concrete. There's a lot of vagueness in the world, and you kind of piece together the lore. It's in those games, it feels like you have these big chunks of lore and information, and you kind of, you know, you get chunk A and then chunk B and then chunk C, and if you put them in the right order, you have a complete story from beginning to end. Dark Souls isn't like that. It's much more spotty and vague and there's a lot of like hearsay and unreliable narration that rather than get a concrete understanding of the world from beginning to end, you get this almost intuitive feeling of the world. You know, you kind of know from all these hundreds of little pieces of lore and character discussion and item descriptions and, you know, visual storytelling, what's going on in each part of the world. And the world is very 
purposefully constructed you know everything is where it is for a reason the the places link together very naturally and logically much more so than in other games and you know a lot of it is extremely vague and you have to make lots of little fill-ins yourself you know i'd say that uh in everything that you're given you know half of the half of the feeling and the understanding of the world comes from you yourself filling in the gaps and i think that this uh vagueness is you know much more present here than those games that you've described yeah the the world has a real sense of place but you're right that it's very light on detail perhaps a better example would be uh gone home or I've been playing through these games by Cosmo D. They're kind of like these very surreal, uh, you know, walking simulator sort of games. You can't give an example that to... no one's heard of. <laughs> <laughs> They're very good. One of what, the middle one in the trilogy is called the Norwood Suite. Uh, they're basically they're, they're games with very vague, vague stories that you have to piece together. And I'm I'm agreeing with you. I I think that that vagueness makes uh, it very hard to actually know with certainty what's going on. But I think that given the nature of the world and the time gap since you were there, it does make sense that information would be this scarce. Like, it makes sense that there wouldn't be complete accounts, and it makes sense that you would have to try to join the dots. It's also a very, I guess, uh, a soft approach to the lore and the history. A lot of it's very, I guess, poetic in nature and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They don't explain anything in mechanical detail, rather they, you know, they tell you these very... It's like when you read old mythologies and fairy tales and they, they talk of these events where the, where God took the left leg of the lamb and from that sprouted a city like all these nonsensical um vague poetic notions are underpinning the history and the law like lots of it there's no way to understand the true nature of that event you just kind of have to you know piece it together yourself and interpret it in your own way yeah it's stuff like there is power in blood and you burn humanity to uh to keep the bonfires burning and to bring yourself back to life it isn't a scientific explanation it's like you said it's a metaphorical poetic explanation but because the entire world hangs together on that poetry and metaphor it doesn't detract from the realization and the truth of that world mm. i just want to say that I think that this style of storytelling adds a sense of realness to the place that very few games achieve. Obviously, the other From Software games, they've taken this as a framework and they've reused it again and again and again in Sekiro and Dark Souls 3 and to a lesser degree in Dark Souls 2. But yeah, the, the world has this ethereal quality. The world has this mythical quality to it. But it feels real. The world of Dark Souls feels real in the way that so many video games do not. And that's because they've put the effort into putting a lot of detail and effort into writing the background of the world. And while I do also quite enjoy this style of storytelling, there are some downsides associated, as uh, Patrick's friends obviously told him, and it's that many people can finish this game without knowing that there is in fact a plot and that can leave a lot of the actions and events of the primary plot feeling very 
I guess video gamey is the best way to describe it. Like you just go through these levels and you fight these bosses and you don't really have a good reason or rhyme or reasons as to why you're doing things. You're just doing them to progress because the game funnels you in these directions. And while I do think that having all of the lore and the story be kind of inaccessible and only shown to those people who go out of their way to find it makes it very rewarding. Um, it does mean that the the floor of enjoyment for this story is quite high and a lot of people, you know, aren't going to click with it. But that's the brilliance of it. Dark Souls knows that it's a video game. It knows that it's a video game and that when you play video games, you want to play the game. You put the controller in your hands and you want to kill monsters. You don't want to sit there and watch a movie. It's the opposite of a game like Uncharted or The Last of Us. But many people do want to do that. I understand many people want to do that and I'm saying I don't want to do it. This is is the brilliance of storytelling in video game that is unique to video games that I love to pieces, where you get to choose to engage with the story precisely as much as you choose, and when you sit down to play the video game, you get to play the video game. And that kind of gameplay experience is impossible if you don't do the storytelling in this way. So I'm in love. There's not a single game that does environmental storytelling that I dislike that I can identify. It must be a difficult thing to do because you need to write this really complicated story and then extrapolate from that into the future. But every time it's done, I love it to pieces. Because if it's a good story, I can do all the reading. And if it's a bad story, I can just play the game. Yes, but specifically as a criticism of the execution rather than the direction, um, those games you identified previously, Bioshock, System Shock, etc., I think that many people playing through those games... Um, you know, without going to too much extra effort, can also know what the story of that game is while not being, you know, railroaded into cutscenes, etc. I think that there's a distinction here where Dark Souls is almost too light a touch um, for a lot of people. It is true that when you play a game like Bioshock, you can listen to the audio logs while you're playing. So you get you get this idea, you can have the story delivered to you as you're naturally playing instead of, you know, pausing the game and looking at item descriptions. And the truth is, it's not like I, every time I get a new item, I'm like cataloging that item description and cross-referencing it against other characters. Most of the details of the story I get, I get from external sources. I look at the wikis, I watch videos by Bharti Vidya. But the critical thing, I guess, is that in putting the writing in the background instead of the foreground, it brings a richness to the world without shoving it in your face. It's like how Tolkien wrote reams and reams and reams of stuff underlying the Lord of the Rings. He did the Silmarillion and a bunch of other stuff. And even though you never see that detail, the fact that the detail is there underpinning the world can still does a lot to bring the world to life because there's a logic and sense to everything that informs the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I completely agree with that point. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the entire world of Dark Souls has very clearly been fleshed out and only, you know, we see a very small fraction of that work uh, in the actual game, but everything has some kind of reason behind it, even if that reason is a bit vague. And although, unlike Patrick, I am not so 
you know, in love with this, these games that, you know, don't shove stories in your face. I, I'm pretty, I'm right in the middle. I like cutscene heavy games. I like, you know, cutscene like games. Uh, I don't mind either way really to do storytelling. Um, but one thing, one benefit I do see um, to this style is that I think the game gains a lot of replayability um, with this light touch. Every time I play through this game, I find a new item description that I haven't read before, or a new NPC that I haven't spoken to, or even an NPC that I interact with um, in a completely different way than last playthrough. So I feel that, you know, in this specific style of storytelling, uh, every time I play through the game, I pick up something new about the world, and it keeps the experience, you know, somewhat fresher on each subsequent playthrough that I really appreciate. Yeah, like, for example, something that I picked up on this playthrough was the whole story with the Fair Lady and Quelag and Blighttown, and the fact that Blighttown was a mining community, and that's why there's all the holes in the walls as you're descending, and the fact that the Fair Lady sucked the poison out of the members of Blighttown, which is why she's sick. Like, this is stuff that, I mean, you may not even find the fair lady. She's behind a secret wall when you get down there. But they've built a story there ready for you to discover if only, you know, if only you can do it. And the fact that the story exists gives a realness to the world that just doesn't exist in other video games. So mm. I would much prefer to have these stories be there in the background. Then can you imagine if there was a cutscene where a character where Quelag was explaining, you know, about her sister, the fair lady, and the trial she had gone through to take the poison? It would have been horrible. I would have hated it. Instead, they write it in there in naturally into the world, and it's there if you want to discover it. And to me, that's perfect. I love it to pieces. Yeah, I think the lore surrounding the characters, the Witches of Isolith, um, is some of the best in the game. Unfortunately, um, their area is probably the worst in the <laughs> game, but we'll probably get to that later. We shall. Um, before we move on, I want to talk a bit about the main plot. Mm. When going through it again this time, I did notice that the main plot is actually delivered primarily through exposition in... Uh, stark contrast to the rest of the game, which is primarily, you know, these little tidbits you get here and then, you know. Uh, the plot in this game is introduced to you through an opening cutscene, and from then on, you hear basically nothing about it until probably midway through the game, where you get quite a large info dump from a character. This really stood out to me, because I always saw this game as, you know, as brilliant uh, environmental storytelling story rather than these you know these big heavy-handed info dumps well it isn't a super big flaw on the game to me i do think that it's a bit weird in how uneven it is you really only get uh, any explanation as to what you're actually doing here you know in like one uh, single conversation in the entire 40-hour experience and it is a bit kind of jarring when you know, you kind of, you want to know why the hell, you know, you're going through this world, what your purpose is, why these video gamey levels are funneling you down these roads that they are. And I, I do wish that there was more justification for um, the journey of the chosen undead. So I, um, I really love the central thread of this story, um, precisely because of how subvertive it is. So the, the main story thread is, if you ring two bells, something happens because, you know, what actually happens, it's been so long since anyone has rung two bells 
that no one even knows what happens when you ring the two bells. The two bells open a gate to Sen's fortress, which is a labyrinth that you have to get through, getting all over these tricks and traps. You reach the glorious city of Analondo, which stands in stark contrast to the rest of the world so far. Everything's falling to pieces in the world around you. It's dark. It's dilapidated. It's horrible. You're going through swamps. You're having these disgusting creatures attack you. It's horrendous. You get to Analondo, and Analondo is beautiful. It's shining. It's 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 the color of gold. Everything's impeccable in Analondo. There's no fallen down structures. It's literally perfect. And there's this grand castle with the most challenging fight, the most difficult challenge you face so far, at the very least. You open the doors, and there is a gorgeous woman in front of you. You know, light is coming through the ceiling. She's She's huge, she's beautiful, and she tells you to kneel. You kneel in front of her, and she goes, Chosen undead, you have proven yourself worthy to link the fires. So now you've got a goal. You've got to link the fires and continue the legacy of um, of Gwyn. Seems simple enough. So you get all the souls, you link the fires, and you immolate yourself to extend the age of fire. So that's the that's the primary story that I would say most as most people experienced it. It's certainly how I first experienced it when I first started playing. So I assume the info dump that you're referring to, James, is the secret one where you uh, have to do some weird uh, sequencing in order to uh, gain access to it? Well, I'm actually talking about both. Um, midway through the game, depending on your actions, you will be greeted by one of two primordial serpents who have existed for many ages, as far as you're aware. Um, and then depending on which one you speak with, they each give you a different info dump, um, and then from which you know you can make a final decision at the end of the game with. I suspect that you really enjoy the subversiveness and the trickery yes. and the confusion and vagueness that um, is within the, the main plot. I also enjoy that. What I didn't quite like was the fact that the main plot is only presented to you in this conversation in the entire game after the first cutscene and then there is nothing else um, in the entirety of the game um, and that many of your actions... Aren't that, like, a kind of weird and unjustified, like, half of the people that attack you, um, I don't know why, I don't know why I'm going here. The the Chosen Undead is essentially a self-insert character, right? They're you, they're, they're your vessel, the player in the world of Dark Souls. And so you break out of prison, and you are taken to this place. Now, what is your what is your first response to being taken out of prison? Is it, I'm going to find shelter, food, and make a life for myself, or I'm going to go into this undead-infested city and fight all these monsters for God knows what reason? Oh, so you're saying that the main character should have a motivation outside of ending the curse? Well, is that his motivation? Yeah. You don't know, well, well, really, because you just escaped prison. That's all you know, right? So so basically, o Oscar drops the key to your cell, and then when you speak to him, you know, in that conversation where, um, where he gives you the Estes flask, he says there's an old legend that if you, you know, ring the bells of awakening or whatever it is, uh, then you can end the curse. So my your motivation for doing what you do is to end the curse, and then when you see Guinevere, she tells you, chosen undead, your job is to link the fire, which 
presumably is tied to the undead curse, although that's never really made entirely clear. Your your it's a standard hero's journey. You know, you you have this quest and the undead curse, and you don't really know how ringing the bells is tied to it, but it makes sense that you don't really know how ringing the bells is tied to it because the people who would tell you are all dead and gone, and the reasoning that links it all together has fallen to myth and legend. I, I guess my feeling is that, like, if this happened to me, gallivanting off into the undead burg filled with monsters is the last thing that I would be doing. Well, you're the hero, right? Like, you're the you're the hero of the tale, and that's the brilliance of Dark Souls. It puts you in the position of the hero, and you unthinkingly do what the hero does, because that's what heroes do. But the genius is... It, you were an idiot. You you never questioned who is me, who is benefiting from this, who who gets the power from me doing all these things. It's postmodernism 101. When you start questioning the nature of the quest, then you get to the truth of dark. Yeah. So if we're talking about the primary playthrough, I feel like we've had this argument before, but our positions were reversed. In fact, you wrote a big article mm-hmm. about why you didn't think that uh, the storytelling in Cave Story made a lot of sense for exactly the same reason, where a lot of the Chosen Undead's actions, much like quotes, don't make a lot of sense given his circumstance. Um, I think that the difference is that uh, if I was, uh, if, you know, Cave Story was a story about, you know, was a Dark Souls game, I would have been able to kill the grandma to get the key instead of rescuing the dogs. <laughs> so there's there's one thing in my favor, because Dark Souls lets you kill any NPC. So there's that solved. Um, I think the difference with uh, The Chosen Undead is that you have been locked in the cell. You're presumably hopeless you have a very real reason to under to end the curse so you're not cursed okay like you're you're affected by the curse and you're motivated to end the curse so i mean that that makes sense as a motivation okay um yeah for me i find it to be a bit too light on the primary plot overall um i think that there if there was maybe one or two things i think if they took the big exposition dumps and spread them out across like three across the whole game it just it feels very weird to have this one huge here's the story and then nothing for the rest of the game unless you're looking for it. Because it's pretty hard to avoid these particular exposition. I guess maybe they thought that they only wanted to give the player this one guaranteed bit of story, and so they had to you know, give them heaps right there um, so that they knew what the hell they were doing. Um, it just seems kind of uh, antithetical to the rest of the spread out you know, lore and the, the method of delivery. Well, when you when you consider that Guinevere is an illusion created expressly for the purpose of deceiving you, it makes sense that it's an info dump. But so so the idea is that Guinevere is an illusion created expressly for the purpose of deceiving you. You're you're basically it's a creation. Um, Frampt is in on that game, so when you see him, he reinforces that message that you've received. Um, the truth of the matter is super hidden and hard to discover. I do agree that that could have been easier to access because it's actually ridiculous what you need to do. It, I, I, I can't imagine many people would discover that naturally. Yes. 
on on any playthrough. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, you can figure out something's fishy by attacking Guinevere and the whole city turning dark, but there's precise steps you need to take to access Darkstalker Kaith is a bit too far for my liking. But the idea that it's hidden in secret is is important to some degree. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that you largely agree with me in that Dark Souls is a game that does a good job at environmental storytelling, but maybe if it had, you know, I think the execution on the main, like the ideas and the actual, you know, story beats of the main plot, I agree with you, are great. I think it's the method of delivery that could, you know, use a bit of improvement in execution. Um, specifically, I wish Darkstalker Kate was uh, slightly more accessible or there were more hints as to how you access him. But I think everything to do with the main story tricking you into following this hero's journey, so unquestioningly you immolate yourself for the glory yeah. of Gwyn, I think is brilliant and I wouldn't change a thing. I just think that there needed to be a bit more about... To give you a few more hints towards the uh, the truth. Okay, of okay. I think that uh, immolating yourself unquestionably makes no sense. That's that's what the hero does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so. Um, I mean, a kind of one of the problems with this subversive storytelling is that you, in making a mockery of yourself, you kind of reduce the legitimacy of the plot. Um, you know, uh, it's it it is like a good criticism of the hero's journey that you know they just do what they do because you know that's how the story works but you know in the moment of dark souls it makes not a lot of sense um and if you're not clued in on how subversive it's trying to be well it's gonna seem like a pretty shitty story right i mean i i just think that uh basically like like i alluded to earlier i like that the story there's there's not much substance you know there's not much um it doesn't dump a lot of detail in your face. Mm. So while I can understand the people who say, oh, Dark Souls doesn't have a story, I mean, in a way, I'm laughing at them because they've kind of missed the point. I mean, I think that criticism is absolutely a fair one. It does not hold your hand with the story. but And, you know, to some degree, I think that what makes the story rewarding is the fact that it doesn't hold your hand, but I think it's still a valid criticism that you can play through the entire game without knowing what the hell's going on. Saying saying Dark Souls doesn't have much story is as much a criticism as saying The Last of Us has too much story. I mean, you, you take whatever amount of story you like in the end of the day, and I like the way Dark Souls does mm. it. I mean, it's a criticism of delivery rather than substance, right? Sure. So I'm just saying I, I think that people i think i think at the end of the day you can either appreciate stories that don't hold your hand or stories that do you can appreciate both but a blindness to the kind of story that dark souls tells i mean i just feel sorry for people who don't get it (laughs) and don't get it i see how it is (laughs) all right yeah i i don't think it's a bad thing i think it's a brilliant thing i can understand i i would just ask that those who criticize it at least try to understand it before dismissing it out of hand Mm. yeah i mean similarly i do think that the story really shines if you do multiple playthroughs um you're probably not going to be able to discover the real story unless you look up how to do so on the internet um and that is a real real legitimate criticism um i don't think there is anything hinting towards these other things 
Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the methods of delivery is a problem here. But I do really like the substance of the story of this game. I do like how subversive both of the, uh, the second playthrough is. Um, and, you know, overall, I think it does a great job of, you know, slowly doling out little interesting tidbits about its characters. So we've been going on for, oh, a good 40 minutes now, and I think it's time for our first music break. Um, this is probably the longest we've spoken about the story in one go of a game. Um, Patrick, how did you feel about the soundtrack, and did you have one that you would like to share with the audience? So um, I like the soundtrack of Dark Souls, but I think this is one area of the game where the soundtrack has been surpassed in the later From Software games. Um, Dark Souls 3, uh, Sekiro, and Bloodborne in particular all have superior soundtracks overall to this game. That being said, there are specific tracks on the Dark Souls soundtrack that I love, but I think there are a lot of pieces here that kind of sound a bit samey and yes. aren't nearly as memorable to me. I think the first piece of music I'd like to start with is the piece of music that greets you when you arrive at Firelink Shrine. It's very beautiful and meditative and calm. And every time you come back to Firelink Shrine, and you come back to Firelink Shrine a lot of times from a lot of different directions, you can feel your heart swelling in relief and it feels like home. So this is Firelink Shrine. Firelink Shrine. I think that if I had to sum up my opinion of the soundtrack of this game, it would be that it does a good job of stirring the right emotions at the right time, but I don't think that any of the songs on their own is particularly memorable, and I, I agree with Patrick that the later From games have done a better job with the soundtrack. There are, however, two or three pieces which I think are absolutely brilliant, and I will be happy to share them with you a bit later. One of the things I'd like to highlight about the soundtrack is just when the music plays, because the vast majority of your time playing Dark Souls will be with no music whatsoever. Most of the music is in the boss fights, so what'll happen is you'll be playing the game and you'll just have the environmental effects. It's a very immersive experience with, with not having that music I've found. I've talked about this before, that music can detract from your experience so dark souls feels like a very dark and 
kind of atmospheric, but it's an oppressive atmosphere. It's just you, your sword, your shield against the world. And then when you enter that fog gate and get into the boss fight, that's when the choir swells. That's when the music really hits you with an intensity to really help put a highlight marker on that moment saying this is this is the important thing this is what it's all about this boss fight and i have to say all the from software games do this they often have a piece of music playing in a safe haven like filing shrine but I think it's a really effective use of music and one I like a lot. Yeah, oftentimes they don't have any music playing, which is very different to a lot of games. There's a lot of silence, which really makes those times when there is some music roaring in the background uh, all the more notable. And I think they do use uh, tracks quite effectively through a number of points throughout the game. Um, in particular, I think that the, the music that plays during the end credits is very poignant and, uh, you know, I guess thoughtful and... You know, you really think about your journey over the past 40 hours as the credits roll. Like in a game like Thief, although Thief had a mechanical reason to not have a loud and obnoxious soundtrack as you were sneaking around, Dark Souls has less of that. But the thing about creating an atmosphere that makes you feel alone and scared and overwhelmed is that when there's no soundtrack there, when there's no music, and you hear that noise in Blight Town, uh, it's terrifying. And if there was music playing, those sounds, those subtle sounds, could very well have been drowned out. So I just want to say, for this game, it was the correct choice to not have music playing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, do you want to actually start talking about some gameplay? We've been, almost been going on an hour without even mentioning it. And it is the yardstick we use for the gameplay of a lot of other games. Well, I think the first thing to talk about is the level design. So... If I had to pick one thing that defines the first Dark Souls game, one thing that Dark Souls, I think, does better than any game ever made, like, ever made, I'm talking about up to the year 2020, I haven't seen a better example of it, is its macro level design. The way in which its levels fit together on a large scale. So, most video games have levels. Some video games have open worlds, but what Dark Souls macro level design do is it overlaps its different areas over one another in incredibly creative yet logical ways. So the entire first six, seven areas of the game are tightly interwoven in all these clever and creative ways that are also natural and, and feel logical and make sense. And as you play the game and the world becomes increasingly interconnected, as you activate lifts, as you open gates that were locked, as you discover just new pathways by defeating difficult enemies, it feels wonderful. Every, every time you discover a new link through exploration, it, it feels better than anything. The feeling when you go down that lift in the church and you discover that you've returned to Firelink Shrine again is one of the best exploratory feelings I've had in a video game ever. 
Yeah, I think From's always been pretty good at creating these little shortcuts in levels. Even back far in Demon Souls, which Patrick and I were actually playing together a couple of weeks ago, um, many of the levels do wrap around back on themselves, so when you progress, it's not because you've gotten to a new checkpoint. In fact, oftentimes you'll, um, you know, you'll be at a bonfire, which serve as your checkpoints in this game, and you'll have explored for a good 10 minutes only to, you know, kick a ladder down to that same checkpoint and allowing you to, you know, cut out a good 10 minutes um, of your exploration. There's a lot of interesting shortcuts and interlocking levels um, that take place in Dark Souls, but I, unlike you, am not as high on it in this game. I do think that there are a lot of areas which are a bit less, uh, you know, I, I agree that, the, that there are a bunch of areas tightly wrapped around Firelink Shrine, but I think a lot of the extremities of the directions you can explore are quite, you know, remote and isolated from the rest of the game. Specifically, Lost Isolith and, you know, most of the DLC, I don't think is quite as impressive as, you know, the, the Undead Parish or... Even, you know, uh, New Londo Ruins, which I think connects to the Valley of Drakes and to the main shrine quite well. I mean, to a degree, that does make sense, though, right? Because if you're going to design a world, there's going to be extremities somewhere. To create a world which is so intricately wrapped upon itself that there's no extremities, I think doesn't make sense to me. And I kind of like that the Lord Souls, you know, these these lords that have retreated, I guess, into their own corners of the kingdom would be disconnected from the central clump that makes up Lord Run. So I, I don't identify that as a as big a problem as you do. I think the same thing was present in Demon's Souls, effectively. I think the best levels in that game do a similar thing where many, you know, levels are interconnected in interesting ways because each level segment really only has the one checkpoint that you wrap back to constantly so just let me address an idea there um like demon souls wrapping level design for example which which for boletarian stuff i'm really big on i would make the point to distinguish between the macro level design of dark souls which is that it's got like six to ten areas all tightly interwoven and connected in interesting ways and the micro-level design of a level like Boletaria, which is a nice helixy sort of loop that keeps looping in on itself. Because that is something that I think that From Software has become very good at. Uh, the Cathedral of the Deep in Dark Souls 3, I think, is one of the best executions of that idea ever. What I think that Dark Souls does best is the macro-level design, the connection of all of these disparate areas in different ways. And that's something that has never been replicated. So Dark Souls does checkpointing through bonfires. And once again, it feels a bit odd talking about this stuff because Dark Souls is such an influential game that hundreds of games have taken their bonfire system. But before they did it, they were one of the first. What? It's just a checkpoint. What do you mean they've done it the first time? It's a checkpoint with a couple of options attached to it. Well, I would identify one of the things they did uniquely with that checkpointing is that when you rest at a bonfire, all of the enemies respawn. And for again for Demon Souls, that just meant that the enemies respawned. You know, the D Demon Souls didn't have bonfires. Demon Souls, you kind of had to beat the levels and rely on the shortcuts. But in Dark Souls, that whole concept of the the balance between do I rest at a bonfire to give me the opportunity to level up and spend my souls, 
and replenish my health items versus all the enemies coming back was a real tension-filled moment for me for my first playthrough. And to me, I think Dark Souls was one of the first games to do it. I mean, when you die in Mario, you have to play the level again with all the enemies. Like, it's no different, right? But you don't have that choice. Like, when... I mean, it's less relevant for my current playthroughs. Because I can ever just relevant? Kinda... Like, every time I come across a new bonfire, it's because I found a shortcut. And I immediately rest at the bonfire to get more, you know, Estus, more ability to heal myself... And then using that same shortcut, I can proceed down this new path, which I hadn't gone down before. Okay, let me let me explain it to you because, and I'm this is back when I'm brand new to Dark Souls, so I hadn't ever played a game like this before. It was brand new to me. I was a first-person shooter gamer. I bought my first like controller for my PC expressly to play Dark Souls. So I found this game extremely hard and intimidating, and I remember that bonfire, you know, before the Taurus demon, where Mm. there's, you know, there's the bridge and there's three undead in that building and then there's people throwing firebombs at you. I would go forward, get firebombed, try and fight those undead, lose a lot of health, and I'd earn a certain number of souls. I would be out of Estus at the halfway point between that bonfire and the Taurus demon. Uh. And I needed to make a decision. My decision was... Do I try to press on with minimal Estus and get into fights where I don't have Estus? Should I try to press on um, when I have this amount of souls that I can level up with? Or should I go back to the bonfire and level up and get my health back and try again? And on my first playthrough of Dark Souls, I faced that dilemma constantly. And it seems silly now, right? Because I'm so much better at these games. But for my first playthrough, that was a constant struggle I had. That tension existed all the way throughout the game. I didn't have that feeling a single time in this last playthrough. That seems, like, absurd to me. Me neither. Thinking about it now. Like, you know, you keep going until you die. And then, you know, you respawn and you try again. again. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's all there is. There's no, like... Yeah, if if I have lost um if I've lost Estus so much at that point, you know, I either haven't kindled my bonfire enough or I, you know, deserve to die. So basically this is one of those things where because Dark Souls was the first to do it, at least and because I was new to this style of game, because I didn't understand and because people didn't understand, you were scared of losing your souls. You're like, oh no, I lost 1,500 souls and you'd feel really depressed and bad about it. Our understanding of these mechanics has, a, has become a lot better. And we kind of understand that it actually doesn't really matter if you lose a few souls here and there. So you just keep pushing through till you beat it. But at the time, it was terrifying. Um, but all, this is all to say that that checkpointing system, I think is, in practice, I think I broadly agree with you it ends up being a checkpointing system. And I say that as a veteran of Soul Games and as someone who understands it today. Would a new player feel the same way? I'm not sure. And I think that they are a bit more than a new checkpointing system. So if you've never played these games before, it's going to feel very different to how it felt, how it feels for me today. I think the level design and the checkpoints in this game are really well done due to the way they Oh, the, like the level design often wraps back around to the bonfire so you know you could do these three long sections of a level using the same checkpoints just having a bunch of different shortcuts available to you to you know um you know get past a lot of tedium 
Um, and I really like that. I think it makes the world feel very natural. I like the fact that when you die, you respawn instantly. There's no load screens or anything like that. And, you know, because of uh, the nature of having to go through this long frustrating experience again if you die it like solidifies that feeling of oppressiveness that exists in the world and the law um you know there's you know when you die to a boss and you go all the way back to a checkpoint because in this game um there are no checkpoints before bosses so if you die you have to go all the way back and then you have to do the whole level and then fight the boss again so there's this real feeling of fear that's instilled in the player because of this um, and I think that it has a couple of interesting effects on the player because the, I think the best way to play these games once you've gotten good at them is to play very aggressively and very confidently. Playing scared actually gets you hit and gets you killed a lot more than it should because, you know, you're giving the enemies more time to attack you. Um, and, you know, when I first played this game, I, like Patrick, wasn't used to this style of game where... I think every enemy in the world um, is a threat to you, not just the bosses. Because I think in a lot of yep. games, um, there's lots of you know throwaway enemies where you can mash attack to get through, and then the boss encounters are where you have to get serious and focus. Dark Souls isn't like that. Every single enemy in this game world is a threat to you and can kill you. Torch wielding hollows, man. Yeah, absolutely. They're fucking deadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I still die to stuff like that, even in the earlier levels, occasionally. Um, and, you know, being a new player to the game, when I encountered this, I was met with a lot more resistance than I was expecting. I wouldn't say that any enemy in this game is particularly, you know, super hard or difficult to fight. It's the fact that compared to other games, the, you know, the mooks posing an actual threat, that's the difference, right? Instead of being fodder, they are legitimate threats to your person. So you have to put a little bit of effort in order to overcome this. Um, and I think that the effect that it has is kind of interesting to me because at first you're super hyper-aggressive and overconfident, which is actually how you're supposed to play the game once you're good. But, you know, you meet this unexpected resistance and as a reaction to that, you start playing a lot more defensively, which gets you you know gets you killed more than it should because you're playing the game wrong once you've you know gotten better it's like you become confident again and then you start adopting that you know aggressive play style um so i guess like kind of the learning curve for me was interesting in that, that like i started playing it the right way and then was conditioned to play it the wrong way and then you know realized and got better again see i i disagree with your characterization of it i don't think playing defensively is the wrong way i think that that's just how you play when you learn the game i mean when you first dark souls mechanically has a lot going on like it's a lot of complicated plates to juggle if you haven't played that kind of is game it? before Yes, it is absolutely. I think it's I think it's quite simple. If you compare the combat of this game to something like a Devil May Cry game or Bayonetta or some other, you know, third-person action game, there is a lot there's a lot fewer buttons, a lot fewer moves, but those moves have more weight behind them and more consequence, I think. It's complicated because uh, you don't know what matters. Dark Souls throws a lot of mechanics at you and you don't know what matters when you first start playing. Is elemental resistance important? Is the fact that you're 
is your armor like the stats on your armor important is do do you need to infuse your weapons you've got three you've got magic and you've got miracles when really i agree with you what once you understand what's going on it ends up being simple because it's just dodge the enemies manage your endurance get in hits when they're not hitting you it's easy mm. right but that's not easy to grasp when you first start playing when you first start playing you don't understand poise po- what the hell is poise no nobody knows what poise is when they first start playing people don't understand endurance management when they first start playing that's that's one of the things that takes ages to learn people don't understand the concept of spacing when they first start playing oh i can just back up and be out of the range of enemy attacks People don't understand the versatility and importance of the moveset of of that given weapon or how dramatically the experience changes when they're using different weapons. I think that it seems simple to once you understand it all on a on an intuitive level but when you first start playing yes you're going to play defensively and you should play defensively until you learn these things. I get what you're saying when you grasp that if you could you can just roll and hit enemies using iframes it does seem simple in order to get to that point you do need to start off playing defensive i reckon that if you don't have that reaction that i did and most people did um at the start of the game you probably reach that state where you're good at the game a bit faster like if you just keep ramming your head against the wall with this aggressive playstyle i think you're going to have a lot of dividends but i think that the game railroading you into this defensive playstyle works in its favor thematically and to this the effect of the story almost like when you get good at this game the way your character plays the game makes no sense uh in this you know this dark oppressive world there's this guy doing these backflips and you know crazy backstabs and all sorts of silly stuff uh I mean you've got a point when you're when you're good at this game the world doesn't feel nearly as scary as it should but definitely when I was starting the world was terrifying and I would always go very slowly with my shield held up you know ready to get ambushed from any corner I think the thing one of the things that makes the um the world design of Dark Souls special is the indifference of the world to your existence this isn't a evil overlord sending his army of minions to stop you this is the entropic and naturalistic decay of the world that is getting in your way when you're trying to navigate blight town and the boards are shifting between your feet beneath your feet giving you an unsteady you know platform no one's designed blight town that way it's just blight town has fallen to pieces when you're forced to go over the buttresses and then eventually over those ridiculous planks of wood above the Anolondo Cathedral you do that because someone the last person who used the lift left it in the wrong position for you to get across the world does not give a shit about you it is indifferent to you you're a cockroach or a mosquito buzzing or scuttling around this world and yeah i think that the level design the way it forces you into these uncomfortable unnatural pathways is a really good way of reinforcing that and then eventually you find your shortcut you open the gate that you are hoping to get through again and you can see how the world was meant to be traversed before it all fell to pieces but yeah i just want to highlight that the hostility 
doesn't feel like directed hostility against you. It's just this is the state that the world happens to be in. I think it does in Sen's Fortress, which is uh, specifically designed <laughs> to test people because otherwise those uh, yeah. giant pendulum blades make no sense uh, in the positions yeah, they yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Sen, Sen's Fortress is absolutely an exception, but even Sen's Fortress has fallen apart in a lot of in a lot of ways. It still has guards. <laughs> so that's the thing that makes no sense about Sen's Fortress is that it's this dilapidated building, but it's guards are still like working the night shift or something you know i, I don't, don't really know what they're doing there so basically the guard those serpent guards they work for um the dragon seath and they i think the theory is that they kidnap people who try and brave sense fortress and they um they end up taking him back to the duke's archives so seath can perform experiments on them but you know it's dark souls law that's just a working theory it's just the idea is that that's what big hat logan was trying to do he was trying to get into the duke's archives yeah if you make enough gaps in any story you can make it coherent by filling <laughs> it in yourself hey, at least it's an explanation right so yeah, let's um let's hone in on the combat a bit more a bit more closely now. Um, okay. As I alluded to before, unlike a lot of other games, Dark Souls never really lets up with resisting you as the player. You know, there are no segments where there are heaps of fodder enemies that are of no threat to you. In fact, the places with heaps of fodder areas are, in fact, probably some of the most dangerous because that's where you let your guard down and get ambushed by these, you know, these torch hollows as we uh, spoke about before. Um, so something that I really like about the combat is that each and every enemy encounter is meaningful. The, you know, the, you're not, you know, slapping your way through these mashy areas where you just mash the attack button and hold forward. You know, you have to stop and think about every single encounter, and I find that really enjoyable and really engaging. Um, and, you know, because in a lot of other games, boss fights feel very... I guess, tacked on because they're so different to the rest of the game, when really here, bosses are just big enemies with more health, right? Yeah, I mean, when I talk about the importance of moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, Dark Souls is always the game I'm thinking of. When I'm complaining this game has bad moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, this game has good, Dark Souls is the yardstick. Because like you said, each and every enemy encounter is meaningful because it's threatening. But also, it doesn't really throw the identical encounters at you endlessly it continues to spice it up you know with good and clever enemy placement for example let's look at one of the early game areas the church so from the starting bonfire at the blacksmith which is the closest one you first come across three hollows guarding the side entrance to the church um, one of which has a crossbow so you've got three enemies, you need to decide how to engage in the order in which you engage them, how to approach it. When you walk into the church, there's a big armored knight with much more HP than anything except the optional black knight enemies that you've fought so far. He's got a big mace, a lot of health, he hits hard, but he has obvious wind-ups. Okay, there's another different encounter. When you go up the stairs, there's a boulder knight with a rapier standing on the stairs. So it's an incredibly narrow area, and you have to figure out how to take on this fast knight that can also parry you. It's dangerous and difficult. You go through to the main uh, second floor landing of the church, and there's a million hollows that can be buffed by a spellcaster. 
So in the space of 10 minutes or five minutes or however long you choose to run through it, you've got these four unique, different feeling encounters, all of which can kill you if you're not careful. And Dark Souls does this the entire game long. It is never content, well, I won't say it's never content because there are some dubious areas. There, there are some dubious areas towards the end, but I'll say most of the time it continues to escalate and change up the exact num- nature of the encounter while still having it appropriately lethal the entire time. So as you move through every area, you get a unique kind of encounter that's enjoyable and engaging on its own merits. Yeah, the fundamental, I guess, core of the gameplay really is observation and exploitation. When you encounter a new enemy, you observe them, you see how they attack, you think, where about on the enemy can I attack without getting hit in return, you know? Uh, there's this guy with a big slow club, so you you know, you kind of watch him, you watch his attack patterns, and you, you know, you attack him in the opening um you know this isn't a game where you both just rush at each other and if you have the bigger sword you win although that is possible um the game really rewards you for you know learning your foe and taking advantage of their moments of weakness and i think because it throws new enemies at you and new enemies uh, and configurations at you constantly you're always being challenged to think to learn and to overcome and that on itself is extremely engaging and i really enjoy it yeah so we should emphasize so i called dark souls an action rpg um, at the beginning of this episode to define a genre and it is an action rpg but it's very 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 much on the action side of the rpg scale even though it does have a wealth of like RPG-esque mechanics because victory, I mean, okay, let, let me put it this way. Victory and beating Dark Souls is because of your abilities to play the game well, like your mechanical abilities, reading enemies, dodging them, as opposed to maximizing the role-playing aspect of your character, having a perfectly, it's not about your numbers, it's about your abilities as a character, abilities as a player more than anything else. All right, Patrick, um, we're going to go into something high level a bit because uh, to be frank, I could not disagree with you more. See, like you, I love Dark Souls and I probably hasn't come across in the show, but it is also one of my favorite games of all time. But, you know, Patrick brings it up so often that I feel like I don't have to, so I just let him go with it. But unlike him, the thing I love about this game isn't the, you know, the environmental storytelling or the interesting way that the levels connect with one another or even the way that, you know, each encounter is very unique. What I really like about this game is that it caters to the fickle nature of being a human uh, the entire time you're playing it. And so to explain this, I kind of want to introduce three ideas um, that are the three different ways that a player can progress through a game, uh, any game. And to me, these are mechanical skill, information advantage, and raw effort. Um, so to elaborate, mechanical skills pretty obvious, right? You're really good at your reaction times, dodging enemy attacks, uh, attacking. You're good mechanically at the game. 
Um, and Patrick is suggesting that this is the primary method with which players will be interacting with Dark Souls. And I don't really agree, because I think that my favourite thing about Dark Souls is the fact that it puts all three pillars evenly throughout the entire experience, catering to, you know, a wide range of playstyles and different players and methods of engagement with the game depending on, you know, your mood at the time of day that you're playing it. So, in addition to mechanical skill, there is information advantage, or, you know, knowledge, um, which in Dark Souls kind of manifests its way in knowing the level layout ahead of time, or you know, knowing where items are. For example, you know, it, it was more prevalent to me in this playthrough because this is my, you know, umpteenth playthrough of the game. This is my, you know, like 10th character or something, even though I haven't finished the game that many times. I know where every item in the game is. I know where all the powerful items are located within the game, and I can use that to my advantage. And players who don't know that can look it up online and use that to their advantage. So an unskilled mechanical player can make use of knowledge this way um, by, you know, going out of their way to get a powerful item early and having that carry them through the game. This kind of way of getting better at games is more pronounced in things like puzzle games and card games, where I guess mechanical skill isn't as big as a factor, but you know, you know, raw knowledge and understanding things that your opponents don't uh, is really important. Finally, effort is most seen in you know RPG games. Uh, grinding is the primary way with which a player can overcome skill through raw effort, even if they aren't very smart or they're not very mechanically skilled. A perfect example of this is my very first character of Dark Souls, which when I first played, I was very bad at this game, like a lot of people. Um, so the character that I built was one who wore the heaviest possible armor had a massive great shield and basically took zero damage from anything because I'd spent so long grinding souls to upgrade all of my gear and my character level and my health. So when I got to the DLC, the final boss of the DLC, Manus, is quite difficult. On my very first fight with Manus, I beat him first try by mashing the attack button and running into him because I had so much armor and health that he couldn't damage me. I was able to beat this fight not through, you know, mechanical skill or knowing my enemy with knowledge, but through sheer effort of grinding my character. Because when I got Havel's Great Shield, I saw that the, you know, the stat requirements for that item were very high, and I thought that it would be really cool if I could wield this shield. So, you know, I spent a couple of, like, hours or so grinding my character up into the point that he could wield that shield, and from then on I beat the game quite easily because, you know, my character was overpowered. I think that it is Dark Souls' greatest strength that it can cater to all sorts of players doing all sorts of different playstyles, you know, the mechanically skilled players can beat this game at level 1 because its mechanics are so tight, uh, players can get an information advantage by getting rare items by, like, as Patrick said earlier in the episode, doing these, like, Dick Wraith playthroughs that leverage that knowledge. And less skilled players can get through the game through sheer force of will by grinding. And, you know, at any point in your playthrough, depending on how you feel, you can approach the game in a different way, which is something that I think a lot of other RPGs do very poorly. 
Um, earlier in the show, we did a game called Lunar Silver Star Story, which Patrick absolutely detested because it did not allow... Because Patrick is a more uh, a mechanically inclined player, right? He wants to leverage his ability to overcome challenges. Lunar only allows you to interact with it on the axis of effort. You know, you put effort into grinding, you can beat the game, it's really easy. Your knowledge and your mechanical skill never plays any part of it. It's simply, you know, stats and, uh, you know, that's it. Whereas Dark Souls rewards you as a player for growing in any different way that you want to or feel like you want to at the time, right? If I want to, you know, browse wikis and learn where cool items are or cool shortcuts are, I can do that and it'll make me better at the game. If I don't want to do any of that and I want to beat the entire game with pure mechanical skill, rolling, dodging, learning enemy patterns, I can do that. And if I want to beat the game by grinding my character up insanely high, I can do that. The game rewards you no matter how you choose to engage with that, and it's really enjoyable as a result. So I strongly disagree with Patrick's assertion that this is a purely mechanical game. I think that all of these other ways make it very fun and engaging and rewarding for all types of players to engage in, and I love that about it. So let me start by saying that I think people can enjoy any video game in any way that they choose and I encourage them to do so. But I think that there is a way that you should engage with Dark Souls, broadly speaking, to get the most out of the experience. And while I can get on board with this idea of mechanical skill and knowledge, although I would also include exploration in that. Like, I think that the way that most people should engage with Dark Souls to get the most out of the experience is to try and explore everywhere. Sometimes there'll be enemies that are too tough and you don't want to deal with, that's fine, you can come back later. But try to explore as much as you can and then you fight the boss. And you upgrade your weapons and you use its RPG systems to augment your character to make them stronger. But at the end of the day, I view Dark Souls as an action video game where you're, you know, using uh, your endurance management, your spacing, understanding the moveset of your weapon, you're studying the boss's attack weapons, you're looking for backstabbing and parrying opportunities, you're changing between blocking and using, uh, you know, invulnerability frames on your rolls. That is the way I understand and appreciate Dark Souls as a video game. Is it possible to grind up lots of souls and trivialize challenges? Sure. Is it possible to put Havels on and face tank enemies? Sure. But I think that if you play the game in this way, that you are cheating yourself of the Dark Souls of experience of being exposed to challenge and with and gradually overcoming it by improving your abilities at the video game. Yeah, that's fair. I think there's like a degree of wiggle room here too, where you come up to a boss you can't beat, and so you come up with a unique solution using the RPG elements. I think that that's a pretty... Uh, pretty common occurrence for this game, right? Like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to RPG cheese the whole game, just, you know, specific sections, and that can open the game up to a lot of people. Um, I think that, while I agree with you that it's mo the most fun and rewarding, even, um, to approach this game in a purely mechanical sense, um, I think that, you know, the RPG systems 
and you know the the knowledge gained from exploration and you know possibly you know using wikis to look things up can really help a lot of people to enjoy the game that otherwise wouldn't because you know you and i in our current playthroughs we didn't do a soul level one playthrough if we were truly you know purely mechanical players we would have done that right well what i would say is that the, the word that i would take exception to there is the word solution I don't think there is an RPG solution for your problems. And I think that if you're looking for a solution to your problems, you're not really understanding what Dark Souls is about. The RPG systems aren't there to solve the problem for you. They're there to augment and assist you your basic mechanics. For example, when you go to uh, Blight Town for the first time, there's these guys blowing toxic darts at you. And they give you toxic on two hits they're silent darts they're sniping you from afar it's very dark basically getting toxic is a huge problem at this stage in the game but you don't need to do anything special to get past these guys you can dodge the toxic dart guys you can go a different way however there are options available for you to help you mitigate the problem there are there's a, a a clump, the blooming purple moss clump, that will remove toxic from your system that you can buy from a specific NPC, the female NPC in the sewers. Or there's a shield, the bandit shield. There's a couple of copies of it, including one in the area just prior, that gives you 100% block for all poisons. So if you can block their attacks, you'll completely absorb the toxic with no problems. Now, you haven't solved the problem of the toxic, guys. You still need to navigate these areas. And nor do you need it as a solution, to, because there's nothing to be solved. You can get through these areas without it. But it's a way to help mitigate and deal with the problem of the area. And that's why, why I like Dark Souls. It's an action game, but there are lots of little bits and pieces that can help push you towards victory, but they don't do them in and of themselves. Um, I think solution's a good word for, uh, you know, solving some things. Not Maybe not that example you used, but for example, when I fought the big dragon Calamite, um, I was finding that all of its fire breath attacks would kill me with its first hit. And I, you know, when I was first fighting the boss, I wasn't good enough to dodge them. So, you know, obviously the solution there is just to get good um, and, you know, learn to dodge the attacks. But also something that I did do was I swapped out my gear and I put on a piece of, you know, a gear that was more fire resistant. So, you know, while I was still taking a lot of damage, I wasn't getting one hit and that allowed me to learn the fight better because i was staying alive longer like i agree with you there's lots of little interlocking pieces that add depth to dark souls and i think that everyone's playthrough is going to be very different because there are so many little bits and pieces that you can use to your advantage and i think the degree that you take advantage of these things is going to differ per person and that's really the best part of the game is how it caters to all sorts of players you know playing with all sorts of different weapons or magic or pyromancy because you know even if you come up to a boss that's extremely difficult mechanically for you you can make it easier for yourself um, with these you know these little tricks overall i do think that it is primarily mechanical but i think the degree that the rpg systems matter are you know, very significant and do add a lot to the experience. Yeah, it's funny because I think we're kind of in the same place. We're just approaching it from opposite directions. 
Well, you're saying that the addition of the RPG stuff being able to make a difference is good. I'm more saying that the fact that the RPG systems don't make that much of a difference is good. The thing I love about Dark Souls is this idea that at some stage, you have to fight Ornstein and Smo, and you have to understand endurance management, and you have to understand how to, you know, control the aggro on them and use the pillars to break it up. Regardless of what your build is, with with exceptions, of course, there's always going to be builds that can cheese anything. For the vast majority of builds, you have to learn that fight and you have to beat it. And it's not about getting the numbers right, it's about getting the mechanics right. And the RPG mechanics push you in the right direction, but the thing I love about the game is that, for me, at the end of the day, it is about the mechanics. Mechanics, And I I love that about it. Yeah, you like that if you played the game at level 1 with no gear, not even a weapon, you could probably beat the game if you were good enough right like it's it's less that it's more that the the main thrust of the game is about mechanics and the rpg stuff is there to push you in that direction i mean level one runs a a fun gimmick that i think are cool but i guess i just like most of the focus being on the action side and i like the how the rpg stuff is a light it would annoy you if the rpg stuff got in your way though right like if you had to do these things yeah if like beating calamite was about putting on the fire resistance gear if that was the key thing it's like okay so i've got all my fire resistant gear and i found these rings of fire resistance so now i can fight the boss if that was the the thought process and the focus that would really drive me nuts but the focus is on overcoming the boss through mechanical skill. Mm. That's that's what I like about Because for me, when I first played this game, I was the opposite. I was annoyed by the focus on mechanical skill and I liked the RPG yeah. elements. But, you know, even though we came at this game from different directions, it still catered to both of us just fine. I think... There's a lot of depth and a lot of breadth of um, breadth of experience that's possible with this, and I love that about it. Let me, I mean, do you mind if I just talk about like an aspect I like about the RPG system? Because I've been ragging on it a lot. So what I really like about the RPG leveling up system is that I feel like it's a really good way to express a diversity of play styles as opposed to... Uh, it being about you gaining raw strength. And you do gain raw strength over the course of the game, I get that. But the way in which you gain that strength, I feel like leveling up is about defining a character to fill a specific role, usually tied to a specific weapon or um, a specific school of magic, than it is, I am getting stronger as a guy. Instead, the um, the your strength seems to be more tied to the power of your weapon, which is on a fairly linear um, scale as you explore more and more areas. Yeah, like most of these stats are just, uh, you know, you need to meet these checkboxes so you can wield specific weapons. And mm-hmm. um, it's not like, you know, when we did Crystalis, if you're not high enough level, you can't actually damage a boss. That was absurd. There's nothing annoying about the systems. They don't hold you back mechanically. You can, you know, you can play the game in spite of them if you wish. Um, but they are here, and if you know, if you're one of those players who wants to um, play a game with a certain flavor of character, um, like often Patrick and I play a lot of card games when we bring this up. But in Magic: The Gathering, um, there's lots of 
less skilled players, I'd say, who have this idea of a deck built around a certain thing. Like, they want to play their unicorn deck, whereas most of the pro players' decks just have a bunch of the best cards and they don't have a, like, you know, unique flavor tying them together. But in Dark Souls, you can absolutely... You know, be make a character and be like, I'm going to be a cleric with mad, you know, with holy powers and beat the game this way. You can, you know, do anything you want uh, and beat the game if you can overcome its mechanical challenges. So, you know, it let mm. it lets you do whatever you want. Um, speaking of which, I'm kind of interested in how you did your uh, most recent playthrough. So, um, I did a faith strength build. Okay. So, um, I was my given weapon was a um a great club. Uh, it was pretty great uh it took me a while to be able to wield it but two-handing it reduced the strength requirement to something reasonable mm. and then i um was using lightning spears and a buff from the miracle side of it so i started off just using whatever i could find but then i just built towards this big heavy weapon build it was quite interesting i relied on using my it's been a while since i've played dark souls one um played more dark souls 3 and Sekiro recently and Dark Souls 3 has lots of rolling, and Sekiro has lots of parrying. But the the rolling in Dark Souls 3 is very different from 1. So I started off trying to just two-hand iframe roll every single enemy, and I failed pretty miserably. <laughs> so I started leaning on a shield for about the first half of my playthrough. But as I, I guess, picked up my my you know my muscle memory of the mechanics of Dark Souls one again i went back to putting the grass crest shield on my back for the increased endurance and i just stopped using a shield altogether so yeah rolled around two-handed with a great club that i infused with lightning yeah i um i also lent on a shield a lot more at the start like you did and then like slowly as i got better at the game i guess graduated to the school of iframes um a few weeks ago patrick and i played demon cells together um and at one point in the playthrough i picked up this weapon and patrick said don't use that it's garbage and this little voice inside my head rebelled against that statement and said fuck you patrick i'll do what i want and that manifested <laughs> itself in me playing through the entirety of Dark Souls 1 using a crossbow. Um, and I gotta say, I went into it thinking that it was going to be super cheesy for the entire run. And it really wasn't as, you know, uh, easy as I thought it was going to be. Wait, you fought you fought the bosses using a crossbow? Yes. You fought like Ornstein and Smo using Ornstein a crossbow? Ornstein and Smo, yep. I beat uh, Artorius with a crossbow. I beat Manus with a crossbow. Jesus. I beat, I think every boss in the game... Um, except four kings with a crossbow, uh, because because you need a DPS. Yeah, so crossbows do a lot of damage actually, but there is a big gap between their attacks. So when you press shoot, your character stops for half a second, shoots, and then like stands still for a full second. Um, so the overall DPS over a long period of time isn't very high because of that waiting. But it actually makes for really fun boss gameplay because that like huge delay at the end of your attack where you're vulnerable means that you have to pick and choose your attacks very carefully. So actually, something I like in video games is when different builds have trouble at different parts of the game. And in my first playthrough, and in many people's first playthrough, Ornstein and Smau are an absolute nightmare to get through. 
in this playthrough, I beat them second try, and the first time I only died because someone knocked on my door. Um, because, you know, they're really easy to kite and shoot with a crossbow. However, another boss that previously was very easy for me was incredibly difficult with a crossbow, and that was the Moonlight Butterfly, um, which was, up until Four Kings, probably the hardest boss I'd fought with the crossbow, because... The Moonlight Butterfly is a boss that flies around in the air, throwing projectiles at you, and then after you dodge enough of its attacks, it lands and you can attack it. However, the bridge that you're standing on, the place that it lands, cannot be hit with a crossbow. So my only choice was to shoot it while it was trying to shoot me, which uh, was actually quite hard, and I died many, many times trying to do it. But I felt really good when I finally did it. This wasn't the, like, hide-in-a-corner, cheese-a-both-to-death playthrough I thought it was going to be. Actually, it was quite engaging throughout the entire time, and I think that the difference between me, you know, playing with a melee weapon my first playthrough and playing with this one was different enough that I found the whole experience to be enjoyable, engaging, and overall still difficult, which I wasn't expecting at all. I will say, though, uh... Grinding up lots of souls to buy uh, ammo was a bit painful at times. I am actually shocked that you did that. <laughs> like, that's... To me, that's the definition of, like, a gimmick playthrough. And I get it, you can do it. But that's uh, that's ridiculous. When I played through Dark Souls, I was just killing people. I was like, yeah, I'm going to kill this, swap to this well, weapon. Well, it, it made, yada, it yada, made yada. the mooks a lot easier for the most part. Like, killing normal Jeez. dudes was way funner. Well, like, more chill, because you could just take them out. Well, that's that's very cool, James. I'm very impressed. I, uh, yeah, my, my build my build is far more standard in comparison. I, yeah, I did use the Moonlight Greathorn Spear to kill, because, like, I, like, that boss fight was crazy, so I was like, I want to get the boss weapon for this boss, because it was hard and that was mm. fun. So I used that, because I had a bit of magic, like, I was... Using magic to conserve ammo, like I wasn't purely, like I didn't use purely crossbows the entire time, but every boss I used the crossbow for. Um, things that were really hard were anything that was fast and in a confined space was terrifying. Because, like, when you shoot, you're so vulnerable to things rush. Dogs? Fuck dogs. Dogs are horrifying. They are the scariest enemy in the game. Um, I I gave up on the road to Calamite and used a melee weapon to take the dogs out um, mm. on the way to that dragon because it's just too hard to shoot them. <laughs> they just and um, Artorius, to the credit of this game and its great hitboxes, there's this attack he does where he ducks down and he rushes forward with his his sword thrusted in front of him, and then a second later, after he's finished his attack, he stands up. Every time I dodged that attack and shot him. When he stood up, the bullets would whiz past his face. Like, there was no way I could hit him after he did that attack, because, you know, the hitboxes are that tight, and it's great. Were you able to stop Artorias powering up with the crossbow? Um, so I got the the crossbow in Duke's archives that shoots three bolts at once. Oh, yeah. Um, so... The Arbalest, or whatever it is. The, uh... Yeah, Avalon. Um, and in two shots, it counters his power up, so it actually worked out really well. But I still had to get good at dodging all his attacks because uh, you know that boss is really fun and really hard. Yeah, um, nice. I want to talk about the bosses. Let's um, let's uh, have, do we have, a have a music break. break? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So in celebration of us talking about the bosses, let's have some music from one of the boss fights. Um, I think the one that is most ingrained in my mind is the the Minotaur demon from the start of the game because it's Taurus the one demon, I've heard yeah. the most. And I actually do the Taurus demon. Yeah, I quite like it. So here's the Taurus demon. It's a good example of, you know, some of the boss encounter music. So that was the Taurus Demon theme. So now it's time for us to talk about one of the key uh, key moments of the Dark Souls series, and Dark Souls in particular, the bosses. We've already alluded and spoken about bosses and how they are an experience, you know, as, a, as kind of like a way to highlight the end of each area. But it's time for us to go into a bit more detail on the bosses and something specific to certain bosses and uh, how bullshit they are. Uh, but the first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, the notion of boss runs. So Dark Souls has a thing. You'll finish exploring an area and then, um, you know, you'll have explored everywhere. You'll encounter the boss and it's a tough boss and you'll die to it. You go back to the bonfire, which is often some distance from the boss. It's uh, often not right nearby and you have to get to the boss again. So, James, the thing I want to ask you, because I have my own opinions, but we'll start with you. Uh, what do you think of boss runs? And do you think that there should be a checkpoint or a bonfire that emerges right before the fog gates of most bosses or some bosses? Or how do you feel about boss runs as a whole? So something that you've convinced me of um, over the course of the show and our discussions outside of the show, and I think something I've probably slingshotted to being ahead of you on in some ways is that I've become over the years a huge fan of games that are thematically consistent both with their story and their mechanics even like you know past the point that some would agree is reasonable um, so in this case I think that Dark Souls is a game that tries to offer this sense of oppressive atmosphere and isolation and you know an uncaring world um, and a dangerous world and i think that in this game specifically while boss runs don't really offer anything mechanically meaningful to the player they do a really good job of being thematically consistent with these ideas um, that it's trying to convey so when you die to a boss in dark souls you're sent all the way back to a checkpoint like 10 minutes ago so 
You know, the next time you get to the boss, you're fucking terrified of dying because the threat, it's threatening your time and patience, you know. You're terrified of dying because, you know, you've got to spend 10 minutes of running back to the back to the boss and the world does not care that you think this is bullshit it doesn't care for your time it's just it's a challenge and you have to overcome it so i think that it does a really good job of being cohesive with the rest of the game story-wise and thematically even if it is a bit meta in some ways i think that aside from the boss runs in dark souls the only other thing I've experienced in video games that gives me real fear of failure is when playing Minecraft and you see a creeper walking towards, you know, this house you've been spending hours building. That shit's horrifying. Um, these kinds of, like, mechanical fears, as opposed to, like, I guess the creepy tension you'd find in a in a horror game is something I kind of value a lot in these tense experiences, specifically here in Dark Souls. So I've probably got a flatter take on it than you do um i think that for the early mid and maybe even like the first half of the late game i think that this design is good and the reason i like this design is because i think that after thinking it through and talking to some of our members on our discord server it's kind of just like a natural consequence of naturalistic level design you know, you have a bonfire here because it's a reasonable place to have a bonfire. And then you have the boss arena here because it makes sense that that's the boss mm. arena. And it's not going to make sense if you have the bonfire outside the boss every single time. It would give a kind of staleness and repetitive feeling to these beautifully and realistically designed environments. So it's like a price I'm willing to pay for the um, naturalistic world design because I agree with you that mechanically i don't think it adds a lot to just hold down the sprint button for a minute as you run through a path that you already know where i think it's less forgivable is where you get to the very 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 end game so like the hardest bosses in the game right at the end of the game because i think at that point i'm willing to pay the price of it being a slightly less realistic space if I'm not forced to waste my time running for a minute i mean i've explored most of the world at this point we're at the ultimate challenge that the game is giving you. It's saying, well, this this is it. This is as hard as it gets. I think at that point, I just want to really get into the nitty gritty of actually learning to fight this boss. So I think most of the time it's okay, but I think that the changes they made in the newer games of putting bonfires immediately before these final, final bosses was a good change. And I think having to do the Manus and um, Calamite runs in the DLC is particularly aggravating. Yeah, it's interesting to me um, that you say it that way. So when I first played Dark Souls, the idea of sprinting past every enemy to the boss felt like cheating. So when I beat the game the first time, uh, I never did that. I, every single time I killed every enemy on the way to the boss for my first playthrough because, you know, it felt wrong to sprint past everything. Nowadays, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, I just, I just want to fight the boss. These enemies, I've done them before. But, you know, originally, you know, I had to get good at the path to the boss as well as getting good at the boss because um, if I wasn't good at killing the enemies, um, I lost Estus and I had to fight the boss with reduced health and reduced resources and it was a bit of a pain. So I guess it was less of pointless tedium um, than just sprinting there. 
It was still annoying and it was painful, but it felt like more meaningly painful than it does for me now, where I just sprint past them all, where it feels, you know, pointless and tedious more than anything, rather than uh, a part of the entire challenge. Like, I viewed the levels from start to finish as one challenge rather than just the boss as its own thing. It's interesting. I think part of that is that the early game bosses, when you're learning, are actually deliberately designed to be very difficult to run through. Like, particularly the run to the gargoyles, if you don't execute it perfectly, the um that gang of hollows the channeler is near will block you trying to get through, and then you just get attacked by 30 guys and die. Mm. So all of those early areas have a lot of enemies in kind of choke points that make it harder to run through. And running through with, you know, rolling past enemy attacks is a skill in and of itself. And there, there are areas like, you know, the Capra Demon? That area to the Capra Demon with the dogs and the rogues that burst out of the walls, good luck trying to just run through to the Capra Demon. Like, it's it's going to be so hard. So there are areas where I fight enemies, but like you, I mean, I know how to do these areas. I Once I fully explored an area, I'm like, yep, I've mastered this. Just fighting them over and over again doesn't really prove anything or achieve anything so yeah i uh i kind of think that when you get to the end game just just let me fight the boss that's what i'm here for the run to manus is just stupid that one's not so bad the one that really shits me off is the one from the bonfire to ornstein's smell that um across the whole bridge um from the starting bonfire ah james you don't you don't know the trick so, so the bonfire you use is the one near Solaire, the one that you drop down after beating the archers. And then the spiral staircase, if you go up the staircase on one level, you can jump over the edge of the spiral staircase onto the second floor, which has a staircase connecting to Ornstein and Smo. And it's about twice as fast as... Oh, the I didn't know that. Yeah. Bridge. Yeah, it's a, it's a tr- someone had to tell me about that. It's not obvious. Yeah, I found a new one recently, and I was trying to look for it online, and I can't find anyone else doing this, but I found this really fast way to get to Four Kings, um, which is you rest at this bonfire that's in Darkroot Garden, yeah. take an elevator you down, down you go down the lift, yeah. you go across the Dragon Bridge, and then yep. in that first room to the left, there's this heightened ledge, and a weird, like, bit of terrain that if you sprint and jump on, you can actually, like, weirdly jump up that ledge, which is right next to the boss. Ah. Yeah, um, and, you know... Yeah, I, no, I didn't know that either. Yeah, because part of the level design takes you to that ledge, and I was like, what the hell, there's nothing there, there's no items or anything, there's just one enemy, and I was like, what's the point of this area? And then I realised it was right at the gate, so if I found a way to awkwardly jump up there it cut out like so much time it was like i reckon it takes less than a minute to do get to the boss that way no that's cool i i've always gone from filing shrine so yeah that sounds far faster yeah yeah it was awesome so like you mean i mean this is the natural progression of a game that's super replayable right you learn these things um, and you get to, you know, get better at the game every time you play it. And I think um, these kind of things, the the build variety, I know we're talking about, we're supposed to be talking about boss fights here, but like, I think this game is very replayable and I love coming back to it because I can always apply these new things. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the bosses. Mm. So for me, I would, I guess, group the bosses into uh, kind of like two rough categories, puzzle and gimmick bosses 
and then combat bosses. Um, I would say uh, gimmick bosses are stuff like the Capra Demon, uh, Bed of Chaos, Ceaseless Discharge, whereas the combat bosses are Onsan and Smo, Artorius, Manus. Most of the bosses in the game, I think, are just uh, combat bosses. So, James, my basic statement is that I think that puzzle bosses are shit and combat bosses are fun. I don't really enjoy any of these gimmicky or puzzle bosses, whereas the ones where I get to get into arena with a sword with an enemy, learn that moveset, that's that's what I'm talking about when it comes to bosses. I think the Capra Demon is the right way to do a boss that rewards you for making good use of the terrain and the environment and the wrong way to do it is better chaos which is just a complete clusterfuck the worst boss in the entirety of the front of like the souls born catalog i think it's fucking dreadful and i hate that piece of shit um yeah it's one of the worst bosses made full stop yeah yeah it's like you go down there and there is this, you know, this boss and it's got these two glowing points that you have to hit and that's fine. So you hit the first one and then the boss wakes up and, you know, it seems like you're just running to the other point and, you know, it swings its hand at you and you dodge it and that's cool. But then the floor underneath you collapses and you die instantly. And then you repeat the corpse run and you die in like four to five different holes before you realize the safe route uh, it's just, it's like trial and error of the worst possible kind. Um, I, I hate that shit. Bed of Chaos is famously bad because it kind of goes against a lot of the other design principles that inform all the other fights. And it's got one final nasty trick. So after destroying the two things, you think you can see a um, a tree branch like in the middle that it seems obvious you're meant to go down the middle and jump into it in the gap in between its sweeping hands. So as you run up, des- finding the perfect gap, you jump down the middle only to see as you fall to your death that it curved out of your sight. Yeah. And every single time I do that fight, I forget and I die and I jump in the pit and I want to throw my controller across the room. It's funny because there are these two tiles that are like jutting out forward. And if you sprint across them and just drop down without jumping, you still land on the branch. So it like almost tells you where to do it, but there's no way to know that until you've died to it the first time. Um, that entire area, um, Lost Isolith, fucking infuriates me because not only does it have some of the shittest visual design um, execution-wise because there are these copy-pasted enemies everywhere and everything looks very clashing against these terrible lava textures, but it has... They're the characters whose lore is my favourite, the Witches of Isolith, uh, come from this area, so... You know, I was always really excited to get there to learn more about these characters, only to be met with this complete clusterfuck of a boss and, uh, you know, uh, level design. Let's uh, let's go back to the Capra Demon, because you said that's an example of a good boss design. I actually think Capra Demon is terrible. So I think Capra Demon's fine in theory. You know, um, big tough enemy with two dogs and a staircase that if you can get up, you're basically safe. But there are, but the main problem is the exact design of the arena. It's a little too narrow, and the problem is that as you're coming through the fog gate, your vision is obscured, and the enemies start moving to attack you. So getting that first roll dodge is super awkward because they're already pretty much attacking you as you're emerging from the gate, and you have to find the exact window to get that roll. Because you, if you press it too early, you're still stuck in the fog gate. 
So I don't like that. And I think that I think that the arena is slightly too narrow even then. It could be deserved to be widened a bit. Yeah, I agree with you that the execution's poor. I kind of meant the direction. Sure. I think that, like, direction-wise, Capra Demon having this environment... Like, even Ornstein and Smau, their arena has these pillars that you get to make use of. Um, I think that yep. that's enjoyable. Um, I think that having the environment have this, like... I don't want to say puzzle, but have this... You know, this aspect wrinkle. for you to... Yeah, wrinkle for you to take advantages of is fun. Um, but once you become, you know, a pure puzzle, it's kind of... It loses its replayability and it becomes a bit of a chore. Yeah, um, Ornstein and Smo is probably the most famous fight in Dark Souls for good reason. Uh, I think it's a fascinating fight. It's probably the biggest difficulty spike in the game. Like, I think that once you've beaten Ornstein and Smo... I think for that point in time, it's the most difficult fight. And although there are more strictly difficult bosses, I think by the time you get to them, you're more prepared. better equipped to... Yeah, you're more prepared to deal with it. You've played Dark Souls for long enough that you know what you're dealing with. But Ornstein and Smo really put you to the test because they're relentlessly aggressive and they will... They keep chasing you down and your windows to get damage in is very small you need to be managing aggro of both enemies. You need to be managing the defense, uh, like your endurance, uh, the endurance spent on defense versus rolling versus attacking. And yeah, and they, they're unpredictable. They both have a wide array of moves that overlap in different extremely annoying ways. And sometimes you need to wait 45 seconds because they just happen to be overlapping in ways that aren't giving you windows to actually attack them. I think that um, overcoming Ornstein and Smo is probably the best possible feeling you can have playing Dark Souls because you can't really beat them without nailing the mechanics. And you will fail a lot trying to beat well, them. Well, I mean, you can stand behind some of the pillars and shoot them with a crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. In most instances, you cannot cheese them, although James somehow magically found a way. But at least in all the playthroughs I've done, I've had to beat them. I've beat them fair and square, and it's always satisfying to do so. I will say that one of Ornstein's attack, which is this flying charge he does against you, is ridiculously uh, yes. buggy. Yes, it is. Yeah, he, he kind of like decides to go in the charge, and then even if he gets stuck behind a pillar or smoke for 10 seconds, <laughs> yeah. he'll continue to be in this flying mode until he uh, makes contact with you. It is very weird. Um, I With the boss fights, I really like the process of getting better at them. When playing these games, what usually happens is you'll encounter the boss for the first time, uh, you'll proceed to get destroyed in the first 10 seconds, and thus begins this process of getting good. Uh, so running back to the boss and, you know, trying again and again and again. And each time you learn a bit more, you know, maybe you figure out that this one attack pattern can be beaten by rolling at this time or at this angle or by blocking. And then you'll slowly get that knowledge for each of the boss's attack patterns. I think the best bosses um, in the game are primarily in the expansion Artorius of the Abyss. Um, I think that Artorius, Manus and Calamite are, you know, great bosses and are probably still up to the standard of From's current boss design. 
Whereas I think a lot of the ones in the base game are starting to show their age because they're not as... Particularly in the latter half. Yeah, because they're not as fun to learn the mechanics of. The thing that makes the other bosses stand out is that they all have, you know, like a dozen different attacks. You know, you need to learn all of these attacks in order to beat them because they have so much health that, you know, even though they have so many moves, you're going to see each move like 10, 20 times per time you fight them. So you really, really need to know everything about the boss in order to beat them. Whereas some of the earlier bosses, like, I don't know, like the Gaping Dragon, they have like two moves. So you learn how to beat them extremely quickly and it's not that satisfying to overcome the the process of learning doesn't take as long and although you know for newer players that can be frustrating i really these days revel in uh, the state where i'm learning the boss like that midpoint of learning the boss where you're still losing a lot but you can feel yourself getting better that's really satisfying to me and even though i'd beaten artorius and manus before you know going through them again and having to relearn their patterns was really fun yeah it's this um weird thing with the curve of enjoyment with the difficulty of the bosses because i think a lot of the bosses in the early game up to ornstein and smoke are actually quite good uh gargoyles is great taurus demon is a fine first boss i think quilag is an excellent boss um she's you know quite quite easy but i think that she's got a varied interesting move set and um she the way she affects the arena is interesting i think the explosion is a bit bullshit yeah i i got um i died a couple of times to it when i got caught on her legs actually which was pretty frustrating but it's got a very clear tell so you can you can always avoid it yeah the, i think the first time you see it there's no way to know what's about to happen yeah, that's that sucks. And that's kind of annoying, but you know, other than that, it's okay. You know, you can learn it. I think she's fine. Um I think my favorite boss from the early game is probably I actually can't think of one. Gargoyles? Actually, Gargoyles are pretty good. It's okay. Uh, I don't love it. I mean, so the problem is we're, we're too good at these games now, so we just kind of breeze through these bosses without challenge. Well, I th I don't think it's just us. I think it's the gaming world has moved on since this game came out to begin with. Like, I reckon if I go like if I go and play Bloodborne, like the second boss, Father Gaskion, yeah, will kick my fair. shit in because yeah. it's so hard and it has that same learning uh process that you know the DLC Artorias of the Abyss bosses has where you have to learn all its move and slowly get better. Gascoigne is probably the hardest early game boss in <laughs> any from software game i mean i guess the closest is like the um in hollow knight when you fight against the mantises like that's a boss fight that i find pretty easy but i still really enjoy so yeah i i broadly agree with you um and the bosses get even worse when you get to the end game not including the dlc uh seath is a terrible boss nito's a pretty bad boss Four Kings is okay, but it's basically just a DPS race. Uh, and Gwyn, even Gwyn just feels like thematically he's a husk, so it makes sense that his moveset would be fairly simple. But compared to the final bosses in the other From Software games, he's a huge disappointment. Gwyn's hitboxes are like shockingly fair. Like, if you dodge your attack and you look like you should have dodged it, you do in that fight. Whereas in against, I'm gonna this boss I hated more than any like other than better chaos. The boss I hated 
was the Demon Fire Sage, where I feel like so many of its attacks, I looked like I had dodged it, but it hit me anyway. Um, I found it really annoying, you know, because if you stay at its arse, it doesn't use those attacks, uh, which is nice, but a pain in the butt to fight. Yeah, you just get behind him and keep running back and forwards, and then you eventually kill him. Terrible boss, reuse boss. Yeah, it's kind of unintuitive to stick in his ass with a crossbow, but, you know, we'll <laughs> but the, that's just the that's what I get for using a silly build. Um Overall, I want to say that I think that From's boss design has improved over the years and that Dark Dramatic Souls ones, yeah. yeah, are showing its age in a lot of fights. There are a lot of really boring ones. Um, only one outright bad boss, but the DLC, I think, is primarily excellent overall. Uh, I don't think it's got the best level design in the original game. Let's talk about that, because you mentioned that before. What I think the level design in the DLC is, is very good. I think it's a good example of the looping level design. The way you keep opening new lifts and everything is, is interesting, and you eventually use one of the... Yeah, I, what, what's your problem with the level design? Because they're all the same lift, it feels very gamey i don't know it doesn't feel as natural as the other shortcuts because they're, uh, because they're the all same lifts ones. they're all lifts right they're sure, all just a sure, different sure. lift and um i found the forest kind of boring to navigate um what i did like about the dlc was i thought the environmental storytelling of the like the town falling into the abyss like you don't need to be told that you can you just look at it and you know a whole portion of the story um i thought that was excellent you you know, you've you've read about Artorius in the main game, and when you see him acting all, you know, possessed and stuff, you can kind of tell what's going on, you know. Uh, I feel like the DLC says the least, you know, through text and words, but still says a lot, um, and I really enjoyed that. And, it, you know, of course, as I've mentioned, I think three of its boss fights, I think Sanctuary Garden's okay, but the other three are superb, you know, on par with From's modern design. Um, and overall, like, the best part of the base game. This story is just kind of cool as well. Like, I'm a sucker for time travel, so I just love this idea of um, Artorius is famous for fighting the Abyss, but Artorius got corrupted, and it's really you travelling back in time that uh, that fought the Abyss, but uh, no one knows, and the legend has always been that Artorius is the one who did it. So that's just a funny thing. And, um... The the idea of the people of this town torturing the furtive pygmy until he turned into Manus is just like fucked up. Like it, it's it's incredibly dark, and I like that kind of like that hidden detail about how they fell to darkness, and that's why there's hexes and everything in the world. It it all ties in thematically to the mechanics they introduce. So. Yeah, yeah the, the DLC is superb. I mean, From Software always do good DLC. I, I'll even admit that I hate Dark Souls 2, and the I, the apologists for it make me mad, but Dark Souls 2's DLC is excellent. So I think I'm actually going to play that game now that i finished one, because I, I don't remember why I didn't like it as much, and I want to remember. <laughs> yeah, so well, I guess we'll find out why. Um, let's just so say we're not doing Dark Souls 2. Well, it'd be such a good episode, though, for Ugh. the criticism. Um, just, just briefly, or maybe not so briefly. Um, you, always, we always compare the boss fights in From's games when we talk about boss fights in other games. What do you think it is about these ones that make a great yardstick per se? Okay, so um, it's a few things. 
So um, the first thing is the moveset. You want your bosses to have a varied moveset that requires you to react in different ways. And um, from the good from soft bosses often have, you know, five to six different attacks that they use in different ways. Um, bonus points if they have different versions of the same attack. Like, for example, Super Smo has a swing that he chains into a second swing if you're close to him, but if you're not close to him, he only does a single swing. Stuff like that does a lot to keep the boss fights interesting. Number two is the tells of the boss, the animations, the indications that they're going to attack. You need to be able to identify when a specific attack is coming. So if they're just doing the attack out of nowhere or the tell isn't super noticeable, that's a real problem. Pretty much all of these bosses give an indication of the kind of attack they're going to do, whether it's a sweeping attack, an overhead attack, a charge at you. Um, Calamite is actually really good in this regard because yes. it's subtle, but you always get an indication of whether he's going to do a head swipe or a charge, and you need to react very differently for the different attacks. So Yeah, he has like three or four different breath attacks, and you know, after fighting him yesterday for... You know, quite a while um, I was able to tell. Yeah, and I even noticed little things that I definitely wouldn't have noticed if I wasn't using a crossbow, and I'm going to keep coming back to this because I really like how my game experience changed. So he has this breath attack that sways from side to side, um, and I noticed that, like, the animation and the hitbox aren't the same size but like to your advantage like the tip of the breath doesn't do any damage so you can actually like stand there and it's actually the same distance from the tip of the breath to him is the same distance as the max lock-on distance um, which I think is intentional but you can stand in the very tip of the breath and like shoot at him if you can get there in time but you know, in general, I agree with you. I really like that all of From's bosses have really good tells. They're not, you know, so over the top that they're trivial, but, you know, you have to see them like 10, 15 times in order to get this like intuitive ability to react fast enough to them. Like it's a challenge to identify and react accordingly. Yeah. And the idea is that those, those actual, like the actual attacks, they need to be very threatening but in different ways yes. like a sweep a sweep attack is very threatening because of the area it covers it's not easy to avoid by you know changing your positioning slightly you're going to get hit no matter where you are in front of the boss but usually you can use your iframes to roll through it if it's fast moving if it's a fast moving sweep you have um, more room to hit the iframe sweet spot. Uh, whereas a big overhead attack, like Manus, for example, has this really good overhead attack. Manus is like a ferocious box. He attacks really, really quickly. From yes. the start of a swipe to the end of a swipe is like that. It's a snap. So you need to be really on the ball with, um, with reacting the moment you see him swipe. But he has this one attack where he raises his hand over the head his head and then slams it down on you but he hangs the hand in the air for like half a second and i stuffed it up all the time because every single one of his other attacks is almost instantaneous so you you pretty much roll straight away but but with this one you need to delay your mm. roll just a tiny bit more and just that little adjustment added a kind of threat and interesting facet to this boss um, with such a small thing. But you, th that's what you want from an interesting boss. You want little wrinkles 
that uh, change how you play that threaten you in interesting ways. Yeah, Manus in particular was quite difficult with the crossbow fight because, you know, he attacks so fast. So because you have that one second window where you're vulnerable, you know, you gotta you got to react exactly at the time. You know, there are these bits where you can shoot him, um, but you have to constantly be running backwards, trying to get out of his, like, range. Because different mm. bosses, depending on your playstyle, have these these ranges that you want to play at. Calamite, for example, um, when you're a melee build, it's advantageous to... So Calamite's a big black dragon, um, and it's very advantageous to play at its front foot, um, because that kind of lets you dodge a bunch of its attacks in melee. With um, with the range build, I found that I had to just be way further back all the time, but not so far back that it would trigger um, a couple of its breath attacks that I found quite difficult to dodge. Um, the, the It's got this frontal straight line breath attack that will insta-kill you, um if you're you know if i'm standing there in my reload animation so i had to fight the boss close enough that it wouldn't use that attack but not far back enough that i could be you know hit with its others i i find it quite interesting that these bosses are so well designed that they can be a completely different experience based on the way that you're fighting them with what weapons you know uh, great swords or short swords daggers even magic they do. I think um, I think the DLC bosses and the later bosses in From's catalog do a good job of accounting for different playstyles. Although you know stuff early on, maybe not so much. I think um, big picture, one of the things that is notice notable about these bosses compared to the later stages, uh, later From Software games, is that From has basically made it in all their later games that bosses have two stages, at least two stages whether they get a power-up halfway through the health bar disappearing or they just have multiple stages, you clear one health point and then a second one spawns. That really is only a thing for, like, Ornstein and Smo. Like, uh, Manus has it as well. Manus um, has it. Where, where he starts using dark magic. Um, Artorias powers up, so they have it a little bit. But that aspect of boss fights is one that is missing a bit here i guess you could say gargoyles has it because a second gargoyle enters it's inconsistent throughout but in the newer from software games they give every boss a second stage because it's just more fun to have the challenge move to a whole new level in some interesting way yeah it's like once uh, you because once you've solved it you go into the fight and you'd have to do the same thing for you know 10 minutes or something that's kind of boring but if you solve phase one and then you get to phase two it's like they can double up on that you know that fun learning experience in the same boss and you know i do like the design but i kind of think they're starting to overuse it i prefer when this phase two is like an almost like an oh shit moment i think ludwig in bloodborne is the perfect example of a holy shit kind of phase two um whereas you know there's some other things it's like whatever i i like all all phase two phase threes um dark souls 3 has frida and she's got three distinct stages which is awesome i've seen that um, fight, yeah yeah it's fantastic and of course the final fight in sekiro against ishin is technically a four-stage boss fight although the first stage is kind of a gimmick 
But uh, mm. yeah, I, I think that it adds a lot. And uh, yeah, it, it makes these bosses seem a bit bland in comparison. So there are some good bosses here, particularly in the DLC. But um, on the whole, they're just not as good as the modern Frost from software games. That doesn't yep. mean that they're still not very good. It just means that they haven't um, they have improved on this aspect of the game dramatically. Um, so let's have another quick music break, James. Uh, there was another one you wanted to do. We can do it as a break from the boss. Uh, was it the end credits or something? Yeah, it was the end credits. So the end credits is my favorite piece of music in the whole game, just because of how poignant it is and how well it kind of serves as a you know a capstone to the you know the whole game. This moment of reflection post. Uh, you know, this big dramatic moment that was the final moments. Um, I really enjoyed it and I'd like to share with it you. So we're getting towards the end of our discussion, but there was one more thing I wanted to bring up uh, from my notes uh, before we wrap up, and that is the mechanical obscurity of a lot of things that are happening in Dark Souls. So I am super into the story obscurity and the um, lack of information you have about the world and the way that you need to piece it all together. What really irritates me and what I think is bad about Dark Souls is the mechanical obscurity. There are mechanics in this game that don't ever really get explained in a clear way. And there are ways to tease out that information if you are, you know, in the help menu long enough. But it's not, it's not particularly transparent. And a lot of what I learned had to be explained to me or I later understood when I looked it up on wikis. So some examples of that are poise. 
Poise is a hugely important statistic in Dark Souls and in all of these action RPGs that have copied it. Basically, there's a point, there's a damage threshold that will stagger you, and there's a damage threshold that will stagger enemies. So a little dagger poking away against a heavily armoured foe won't stagger it. A big heavy sword might. If you're wearing lots of heavy armour, you won't get staggered. If you're not wearing much armour at all, it won't take much damage to stagger you. And poise has a dramatic effect on your character and enemy characters and the strength of different weapons and different attacks. It's not explained to you at all. Poise is almost like a hidden mechanic. There's a ring you can find in the early game that increases poise, and it's a hidden stat on one of the menus. You wouldn't notice it if you weren't looking for it. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's kind of something that you learn by feel. I'm gonna say over the course of your runtime, like you notice that lots of big enemies are really hard to stagger, and the lighter ones stagger with like your, the lightest touch. And, you know, you, you equip a heavier weapon and something will stagger back. So I, I kind of like these kinds of mechanics that you learn naturally through play. I think that they feel more... You know, it's you, you say that they're obscure, but to me, these communicate themselves the most naturally to the player. I didn't know that Poise had a name for it, like you, you know, it was mechanically obscure, but I understood the concept through plane, and I, you know, I kind of enjoy learning mechanics that way rather than just reading a tutorial on them. I find it more intuitive, and I feel like I'm getting better and learning about the game world. You actually raise a good point. Poise is the kind of thing that you do, that you do kind of get an intuitive understanding I just remember opening a wiki page that explained it for the first time and it was like a light bulb moment. It's like, how have I played this game for this long and not known what poise is? Another example is kindling and being unable to kindle while hollowed and the way summoning works. I can only do it while human. Once again, it's all obvious to me now. Like I understand all this, but the first time I played it through, I had no idea what any of this was. That You go to kindle the bonfire and it says you cannot kindle while hollowed. And you're like, what the fuck is this game talking about? Like, what is going on? <laughs> it's not like you can press help on that menu and it says, ah, this is what kindling is. And, you know, you are currently hollowed. It's just kind of sitting there in the background. I think that the newer games tutorialize a lot of this stuff and explain their mechanics in a way that I appreciate far more. Like, particularly Sekiro. Sekiro is a game where they had to introduce a whole bunch of new mechanics, and I think that it does a far better job explaining its complicated mechanics to you than Dark Souls does. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I, I kind of... See, I feel that there's this connection between the mechanical obscurity and the obscure nature of the world. I, like, I get that you want that to be distinct, but to me, the mechanics being confusing along with the story being confusing works together to form a cohesive whole, and I really like that. What, what I will give you is that I think that it does add to the mystical allure of Dark Souls. Like, Dark Souls being mysterious in this way does make the game feel a bit more special and hard to decipher. Um, NPC quest lines are something uh, similar in that they're incredibly obscure, but once again, this is the type of obscurity I can get behind. 
Uh, one of the things I love about this game is how the NPCs kind of are not your... They don't just stand around uh, with a quest marker over their head. They all have journeys that they go on as you play the game. And they'll just disappear and you'll have no idea where they've gone. And I mean, I love that. People have complained that it's frustrating to do certain NPCs' quest lines and stuff. And to me, that kind of misses the point. If you're frustrated about an NPC's questline, look it up. But otherwise, what it adds to the world is it makes it feel more alive. Because these people, instead of being quest dispensers, actually have their own lives. And they go on and about and they do their own thing. So I'm not opposed to this obscurity in a general sense. I just think that something as fundamental as kindling and how kindling works, I, th- I think it should be explained to the player. And I think that Dark Souls goes a bit too much in this direction. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think maybe there there is some wiggle room here. Like, if you started the game and there was a hundred message boxes that told you what every step <laughs> did and what... That would be awful, right? And completely well, go against the themes of the game. It's really funny because Demon Souls literally does that. At the bottom of the Nexus, as a stairs, there's about 25 messages that the developers left, which are all just tutorial tips. And yes, it's, uh, it's kind of awkward. <laughs> um, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up, Jimmy? Uh, we're pushing to a bit over two hours now, and I'm looking to edit this tomorrow is making me cry <laughs> on the inside, but, you know, you do what you have to do. No, I uh, I think we've mostly uh, touched on everything. We haven't spoken about graphics, but as a, uh, as a how is this hold up thing, it doesn't seem fair to, uh, you know, compare a, a graphical upgrade from a couple years ago to these older retro games we've been reviewing. Basically, it looks all right. yeah yeah could be better (laughs) so uh patrick uh final and thoughts and you know we don't have all night (laughs) (laughs) um dark souls is a magnificent game uh it's not my favorite game of all time uh from historically i think it's one of the most influential and one of the most important games ever made but from the perspective of this show has dark souls stood the test of time the answer is an easy yes but it has a lot of flaws. Um, it has a lot of problems compared to compared to the modern takes that From Software has done. From has, in most ways, considerably upped their game. Where I think Dark Souls is still unparalleled today is in its macro level design and in its storytelling and its world design. I think Bloodborne probably has the best environmental story and the most interesting story. But I really love Dark Souls' subversion of the hero's journey and the density of the world that's created. I think it's better than Dark Souls 2, 3s, and Sekiro's. So it's got a superb story and incredible level design. You might find the combat a little too easy. You might find some of the bosses a little boring. But the quality here is still really high and moving through its level and world is still incredibly enjoyable today. Dark Souls is a fantastic game. It's not as good as it was when it was released in 2011, but it is still well worth your time to play, and you should definitely play it. Highly recommended. For me, Dark Souls 1 is probably my number one favorite game to replay 
Um, I think that the sheer breadth of options that you have available to you when playing through this game, coupled with the fact that you can proceed through the game world in a number of different ways, that you're not bogged down by NPCs giving you exposition over and over and over again, means this is a fantastic experience on a second, third, fourth, fifth playthrough, something that I can't say for a lot of games that I also love. Um, I think that this game really shines in its moment-to-moment -moment mechanics. It feels really good to play. Your character has this sense of weight behind each of his attacks. And most of all, I enjoy that every single enemy in this game poses a significant threat to the player. There is no throwaway enemies in this game that are boring to fight. Um, everything is there for a purpose. There is no mashing through mindless encounters. You have to be on your toes at all times. Uh, aware of traps, uh, things around the corner, and I, I really think that it's engaging from start to finish because of that. I think that the story shines in its world building. Um, I think that it is a bit weaker in its plot. However, you know, the breadth and scale of the effort that the writers have put in behind the scene is very obvious and it pays dividends in a big way. The boss fights have aged poorly in the base game, but the DLC bosses are some of the best in gaming, in my opinion, Artorius being my favourite boss of all time. Um, I would highly recommend Dark Souls 1 to anybody who hasn't checked it out, and would thoroughly recommend anybody who is thinking of bouncing off it to stick with it through some tough, difficult first hours for a truly rewarding experience. And don't put on Havel's armour. Ever. No, put it on <laughs> and use the <laughs> <Okay>. crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that about wraps it up. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this marathon of a discussion on Dark Souls. We are the Retrospectors Podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I was joined today by my co-host, James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, rspodcast.net. It's got links to all of our podcasts, including a bunch of articles, uh, that, have, that James and I have written, including my stunning dissertation on how Lunar Silver Star Story is the worst game I've ever played. So if you hate JRPGs as much as I do, you might enjoy that one. Um, we are available anywhere. You would listen to podcasts, including Spotify. So you can download it directly off our website, stream it on the website, or listen on a podcast or whatever suits you. More than anything, we would love if you would come and join our Discord community, particularly in light of uh, the fact that we're doing our mailbag episode next fortnight. Um, our Discord is a hotbed of discussion and argument for games old and new, and we would love for you to join it. If you have enjoyed listening to the show and you have literally any question about games we've played for the podcast or modern games or our opinions on philosophy and gaming or whatever it is, we would love to hear from you. So if you would like to drop on down our Discord, please do pose a question to get ready for our mailbag episode. Yeah, the mailbag was fun last year, and if you want to ask really offbeat questions, those are the questions I encourage. I think uh, my favourite question that's been asked so far is, what is your favourite sandwich? And we'll have to wait till uh, next fortnight to hear the, the gripping revelation um, from myself and Patrick. So if you have anything weird to ask, go ahead. We'd love to answer them. Uh, this is obviously an episode more geared to our longtime listeners of two years max, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, love to hear from you.
yeah so um thank you so much everyone for listening today and letting me gush on about dark souls thank you to you james for letting me do dark souls for episode 50 well i mean i get two episodes in a row as a repayment so uh you hope you look forward to that i think uh, <laughs> the first game is probably going to be civilization 4 but we'll talk about that more closer to the date um, if anyone has any good suggestions for games Patrick will hate, I'm always, always <laughs> open. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next fortnight for the Mailbag episode. See ya. See ya.